If you brought a copy of God's Word with you this morning, I would invite you to find Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. We are doing a study on theology, which we are calling the quest for an unshakable faith. And today we want to talk about the church. We talked a few weeks ago, Brad talked about Jesus as the, our head, the head of the church. Today we want to talk about the church itself. And uh, we want to make a beeline for what we are all about, what we're in this world, what in the world we're doing here. And uh, Ephesians chapter 4 will give us a base text here. Uh, there are many texts we could go to. The pastoral epistles, especially First Timothy, is literally just given to the church. In fact, he tells us as much. He says, I'm writing these things so that you ought to know how to behave yourself, conduct yourself in the house of God, which is the pillar and bulwark of the truth. But here we're told, I, therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness and patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. We'll stop there. There is much to this text as the Apostle Paul delves into the responsibilities of those in the church. The church, the church, what is the church? Well, for one thing, it's a family, the family of God to be specific, and like a family, there is, uh, there's love, and there's encouragement, and there's an occasional quarrel. Anybody ever been in a church where a quarrel broke out? No testimonies, please. But that was, it was just that whole thought of what, that the church being a family and just, if you just think of your family and all the things that have happened in your family through all the years and then spiritualize that a little bit, if you please, and you'll have a church. Uh, that's what provoked Warren Wiersbe to say, if I have a quarrel with the church, it's a lover's quarrel. I was meeting with someone just the other day who had visited our church and he made a very astute observation. He visited our church for the very first time and he, he said to me, he said, my observation having been there is that your church is more about who you are rather than what you do. And I encouraged him for that observation. And I would argue that who, who we are should determine what we do. The church, the word ecclesia means to be called out. It, Sometimes translated assembly. It's a gathering. We are called out from the world and we are called to an assembly. We come together to worship just like we did in song that our triune God, to hear his word, to practice the ordinances that both identify us with Jesus Christ and remind us of his death and subsequent resurrection, that being at the, the, the Lord's table. And then to, to penetrate this world for the sake of the gospel. It's the only hope this world has, the church. In a letter to Tarjan, the emperor of Rome, in the, very early in the second 
century, the governor of Bithynia, his name was Pliny, writes a long letter to Tarjan. They actually have, an, we have all these words. They exchange letters with one another. And he basically is trying to ferret out these Christians that so-called, and they're really trying to figure out what Christianity really is. Is it just a subset to Judaism? What is this anyway? And so Tarjan has sort of, has sort of commandeered Pliny to find out. And Pliny writes this letter back, and he, it's, a, it's an amazing, you can find it on the internet, read it, it's very interesting. And he talks about persecuting individuals who are claiming to be Christians. In fact, Pliny goes on to say, in fact, he said he described the worship as very simple, very early in the morning before the sun came up. So they had like sunrise service every day in those days, I guess. And uh, they, they sang songs to Christ as God, which of course would have got the ire of the Romans up because it was okay that if Christ was a God, as long as he was a God amongst many other gods. They were a polytheistic society. But if Christ is the only God, if he is Lord above every other Lord, as we just sang, that's when the hammer comes down. And so, interestingly, uh, Pliny found out that it was rather easy to identify the so-called Christians. Uh, in fact, he wrote to Tarjan and said, under the threat of death, a lot of them would say things like, well, I used to be, but I'm not anymore. Or, I was three years ago. Very interesting. And, uh, and then he said, in fact, these are his words, and I quote, he says, under threat of death, uh, to, uh, he said, None of which who are really Christians, it is said, can be forced to do. That is to deny Jesus. And I was thinking about that, and you know, I just was thinking about how we should be praying for the persecuted church in our world. And if, I mean, you have to have your head in the in the sand to not see what's happening with ISIS, this uh, radical Islamic group uh, which has no country, just literally taking over northern Iraq and decimating. Everyone who doesn't believe in this Sharia law form of, of Islam, and they are killing, beheading, and crucifying, yes, crucifying Christians as we speak. And the only reason they're getting crucified is because they will not deny their faith. God bless them! We are the church. Those who know Jesus, those who are born again, those who are God's children, we are the church, the local body of Christ. We are, Paul says in Ephesians, we are the body of Christ. A body, among other things, is the visible manifestation of the person. Thus, the church is intended to be a visible manifestation of Jesus. Recently, I spoke at an event where I was called to speak uh, to a very delicate situation with both truth and delicacy, a dear saint wrote to me, uh, and uh, she was very encouraging. And she said this in her, in her letter. She said, she said, she thanked me for, quote, the way you handled it, she said, is how I would expect Jesus w- would have done so if he were speaking. Let me tell you something. That's about as encouraging of any, as anything I've ever been given in my life. But the reason I'm sharing with you, forget the fact that it was one of the most encouraging things ever expressed to me. This is how the body, the visible representation of Jesus on earth, is supposed to be seen. We're supposed to be like Jesus. 
In Ephesians alone, Paul has numerous terms that describe the church. I won't give you the references, but saints, faithful uh, in Christ Jesus, uh, us who believe, the church in all her glory, his body, his workmanship, one new man, fellow citizens, fellow heirs, God's household, a dwelling of God in the spirit, children of light, brethren, and those who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. Those are all terms used for the church. But with the gathering of the believers, what we're doing here is most, the designation we're most known for is church. The church is a mystery. It's called a mystery. Earlier in Ephesians. And and the mystery he tells us is, is the fact that God, who didn't tell us this in former times... He sort of withheld this from the Old Testament guys. So you study the Old Testament, you see the suffering of Jesus, you see his glory, you see him on his throne, you see the Messiah, but you don't see the church. And it's a, now it's revealed that the church is not just the Jewish people, but it's everyone who places their faith in the living God and particularly in his son, the Lord Jesus. Furthermore, the purpose of this mystery, we're told in chapter 3, verse 10, if you just look up a little bit, the purpose of this mystery is so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. So the purpose of the church is to explode the wisdom of God and to glorify, verse 21, the risen Lord Jesus Christ. So it begs the question, are we doing that? Is this visible manifestation of Jesus here on earth? Are we an expression of God's wisdom? Are we glorifying the risen Lord Jesus Christ? So what on earth are we supposed to be doing to bring this great wisdom and this glorification of God about? As I look at the preponderance of the whole of the teaching of Scripture on the church... Uh, what I see, and particularly in the book of Ephesians, I see whatever we're supposed to be doing has intensity written all over it. And so I just give you three things this morning. And here they are. And it, here's our call. An intense, we're called to an, inten- an intense call to unity that recognizes the oneness of God's family in spite of our differences. And I would include minor, minor points of doctrine uh, ages of individuals and various idiosyncrasies. And, you know, a lot of you have some idiosyncrasies, let me just tell you. <laughs> I mean, look at, I mean, okay, so, so chapter four, he says, I want you, I urge you, I'm a prisoner, he's in prison when he wrote this, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling. He doesn't tell you to be worthy. Listen, very carefully, none of us can be worthy. We're not worthy in and of ourselves. Worthy is the lamb who was slain, amen? We're to walk worthy because of the worthiness imparted to us through the virtues of Jesus' death and resurrection. You can do a word study on all these words, but verse two, humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another, eager to maintain. You can do a word study, but just that word humility is, is worth bearing down. If you have an old translation, it says lowliness which is really a better translation because the word was virtually unheard of in Roman society, much less the Greek intellectuals. They didn't have a word for this. It was a word really reserved for the slaves. There are people who actually believe the Christians invented this word 
because it had no place in society. Let me tell you something, it has a place in the church. And we're called to lowliness, humility. The church is a family after all. Don't we have to be humble in our own homes? Families put up with a lot. Big families put up with a whole lot. We don't say to our brother who makes one awful decision after another, I unbrother you. I unsister you. You're no longer my spouse. Oh no, we, we actually do do that, don't we? But families aren't supposed to do that. We work through, we struggle through, and we fight through if we have to our issues until we become a family again. Which, if we understand it rightly, we never stop being one. When I, I shared several weeks ago about this amazing miracle of sorts in our own family where my, my brother was converted eight years ago. For eight years, alienated from his wife, God brought the two of them together. And I can tell you this, in the middle of the very ceremony itself, as I watched their children gathered around, my nephews and nieces in this room, it was very evident to me, we weren't just bringing a couple back together, we were bringing a family back together. It's a beautiful thing because without the dad who wasn't there for years, it wasn't a real family as they understood it to be, as we understood it to be. Now, I want you to notice in verses 4 through 6, and again, we don't have the time to just you know, plow through this thing expositionally as we might if we were cutting through the, the, this book itself. All the ones, the oneness of the church. You have three verses, seven Seven ones. You think he's making a point here? One hope. I mean, what does that mean? The word hope means expectation. It's almost always tied to the return of Jesus Christ, which is very ironic to me because the return of Jesus, our blessed hope, right? Titus, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen? This is what we look for. We believe this. This binds us together. We believe this. We believe that Jesus Christ is coming again. When, those, when he ascended into heaven, those two angels standing there next to the disciples, they're gawking as they look up. What are you looking up for? This same Jesus whom you see going up in the clouds will return again. We believe this. This is our hope. And it's ironic to me that the very thing we believe in binds us together and some, and even in our own circles over the years has separated us from some people. Let me tell you something. The point is not when you believe he's coming. The point is if you believe he's coming. Do you believe it? So don't get all hung up on all the little idiosyncrasies of what, if and when. I believe he's going to come. I can tell you when I think he's going to come. But if I'm wrong, oh well, he's coming. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. And and, and in this one Lord, that's the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the way, he's the truth, he's the life. No one comes to the Father but by him. That's it. God didn't make his, this is so simple, one faith. Therefore, being justified 
By faith, we have peace with God. There is one faith. This has got simplicity written all over it. And when we have brothers out there and sisters in Christ and other churches that preach this very same gospel, exalt our very same Lord Jesus Christ, believe that he's going to return again. And even if we have minor differences on the dots and the T's, they're still our brothers and we should treat them exactly as such. Anything else is spiritual arrogance. And sin, for that matter. Because, again, there is an intense call to unity that recognizes the oneness of God's family amongst its differences. And why am I sweating? Is it hot in here? <laughs> you look back at verses 2 and 3, all right? And, and you have this... And, and you see all these elements of unity that we don't like to talk about. This lowliness, this gentleness, this forbearingness going on here. Unity is not sameness. Unity is not uniformity. We're, we're different. By the way, it's not an excuse for weirdness, by the way. And some of you can be really weird. I really want to go off on the absence of social skills amongst Christians. Obnoxious witnessing habits that wouldn't win a person on the cusp of believing. I have a bone to pick with those who lack social graces and ought to know better. Nevertheless, you know, God has called us to understand that there are differences amongst us. Not everybody's the same. Are you okay with that? I'm okay with that. We have a small group system we call cell groups. They're not, listen very carefully, because this is going to cut half of you in half. Whatever. <laughs> They're intended to simply, they're not intended to simply put people together in the same station of life. I know that flies in the face of about 80% of you. Is everyone in your family exactly the same? Are they all the same age? I remember walking, I remember very distinctly walking to the hospital that had one of these panoramic pictures of all, of just all of these babies and uh, at that time, I think we had six kids going on seven. I remember I, th- I saw this panoramic picture. I thought, that's it. That's the problem. When people say, you have six kids, they go, you have six kids? I want to look at, well, they're not all the same age. <laughs> but we want to put groups together, and everybody's the same age. Everybody's in the same walk. I mean, really? I mean, don't you? I mean, everybody that's a sports enthusiast ought to be just with sports enthusiasts. Businessmen with businessmen. That makes zero sense. And this is why, I, I mean, God says older women should teach younger women. Have you ever read that? Well, that's so stupid. Doesn't he know that women learn best when they hang out with their best friends? 
I mean, shouldn't it be 20-somethings with 20-something? Can you talk about more of a pool of ignorance than that? 30-something with 30-something, 40-something with 40-something, 50-something with 50-something, 60 These are our friends. I don't give a rip if they're your friends. What if you can help them out? I give permission to every young 20-something cell group right now to recruit an older person. I know I just screwed up Abe's whole business of putting cell groups together. Because we need that interspersing of wisdom and differences and stations of life and the whole nine yards. And this is what happens when I go off my notes and now I have no idea where I'm at. Yeah, I know where I'm at. Here we go. Here's the second thing. To do church, I see in this passage an intense call to strong, gospel-centered leadership that builds up the family with truth. And later on this passage, in verse 11, it says, Jesus gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers or pastor teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. Apostles and prophets, we're told earlier in this epistle, were foundational. Last I checked, you don't keep building a foundation once you've laid. You build on a foundation. Right, Ted? You don't keep building the foundation. And, and so it's, we're talking about family here. We're talking about a house and the, the apostles, the prophets were foundational. And after that, we have the evangelists and the shepherds and teachers. An evangelist is simply one who brings the good news. See Chuck. But not just Chuck. God has given a number of you this ability to reach into people's lives for the sake of the gospel. And shepherds and teachers, poimane, the word shepherd means to, to feed. And this is the call of the pastor, shepherd, his, his, and teacher. It is to feed and lead his flock. It, verse 12 says to equip the word equip literally means to, it means to make adjustments that lead to fitness. That's the idea. It means to make adjustments that lead to fitness. So, so in a sense, we're like a spiritual chiropractor. How many of you go to a chiropractor? Well, don't be embarrassed. It used to be, you know, they used to be looked at as voodoo doctors and whatever. They're not. I'd rather do that than go to somebody who sticks a knife in me, right? But what do they do? They make adjustments. Why? So they can walk again. I remember I got a call one day from a lady who was, she was like three days overdue her due date. I got a call from her. I thought, oh my goodness, she's alongside the road. She said, no, please come and get my husband. Come and get your husband. Yeah, he's, he can't move. He, he sneezed and his back came, went out. So I literally drove to their farm. There was her husband. He couldn't go anywhere. He was a young guy. I put him in a fireman's carry. And I mean, he could not move. Put, walked him out of my car, laid him in the back seat, drove him to the chiropractor, watched this guy do his thing. And the next thing you know, the next day he was up walking around. The purpose of these evangelists and these pastor teachers is to help make the spiritual adjustments that get the body of Christ up and going again. Building up the body. That the word means to build a house. And again, the church is a family. We're a house. We're a family of God, right? The analogy makes perfect sense in your relationship to your children. Most of us, I imagine, 
have families, you're growing in your family, your relationships are growing, they're changing as everybody gets a little older. Am I right? Sure. Of course. And if they're not, there's something wrong. There's some stubbornness happening. There's some resistance happening. And some of you are in the family of God. You're stubborn. You're resisting. You're pushing back against the truth of God. You're not following your shepherd. His whole purpose, he tells us in verse 13, is is maturity. He says, where's that? He says in verse 13, he says, okay, there it is. So until we all uh, attain to the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature manhood, to the measure, that's, we get our word meter from this word, of the stature of the fullness of Christ. This is true maturity. The church must be a place under the evangelist, under the shepherd teachers, where genuine spiritual growth is occurring. And verse 14 tells us why. So that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro, carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human coming, cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. This is the warning that's out there. Bible-saturated, gospel-centered preaching is necessary because and, and, and you see a church that's growing, people being converted, and yet if they don't have truth constantly inculcated in their life through the various means, they're going to be like, they're just going to be whipped all over the place. I love the story of W.B. Riley, great preacher from days gone by who was in Scotland staying in the home of a sheep herder. And in the evening, he got up, I mean, the sheep herder was in, was, got up in the morning. He was just absolutely beside himself. He found out that 65 of his sheep, 65 were killed in the night by wolves. And Riley, being a preacher but ignorant of sheep herding, just said, did, did they take any of the older ones? To which the sheep herder said to W.B. Riley, a wolf will never take an old sheep if it can get a lamb. And this is why no church worth its salt does not put the spiritual food on the table so that we aren't kids tossed around by every kind of belief and cunning, this and that, and they're all out there. Every charlatan, there's more charlatans today than ever in the history of man. And they claim to be Christians. They claim to be preachers. They claim to be evangelists. And they're tossing people left and right. One more thing I want to share. An intense call to exercise the gifts God has given to you. Verse 15 says we're to speak the truth in love, and by doing so we grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, and just the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that that builds itself up in love. Can't you just... Picture the inner workings of the body as you read through that text. Has anybody ever been to the body world exhibit in Chicago? I know it's gross to some of you. I, think it, I thought it was super cool. And, you know, in this body world exhibit, you have all of these, they are actual human beings that were donated to this cause so that we could walk and see, walk around and look at the, the images of 
all the sinews, all the tendons and the ligaments and the bone structure together and how they work in unison and, and through various means. This is, it's an amazing exhibit. But this passage of scripture is telling us that the body of Christ, that's us, every sinew, every part of the body has to be working together with the head, our, our Lord Jesus Christ, the head of the church, operating the rest of the body. He, we emanate we, from him. And so, and, and, and the key for us from a pragmatic perspective is in verse 16. Every part working properly. Another translation says, every part does its share. Every part. I was enjoying supper with someone, some dear folks here recently. And the old question came up again. You know, how can we really know what gift we have? I know that many of you have wondered that. Maybe most of you even. Is it always evident? Am I simple? And we're going to get into the gifts when we get into, we resume our study of Romans. But, you know, if we walk with God with intensity, if we serve his church, if we evangelize the lost, you do these things in the process, you will discover what makes you tick. What gives you joy? What gives you pleasure? What is so easy for you to do? I remember hearing the story of a, of a Bible study that took place, and they were having that very discussion, the gifts of the Spirit. How do we know what we have? How do they even operate together? In fact, one person said, how do they even operate together? And she had this big old ceramic cup of coffee, and she knocked it over the, the chair that she had just sort of balanced it on, and it smashed all over the carpet, all over the floor. And instantly, in that very same moment, the guy with the gift of teaching in the group says, you know, if you put your cup on the coffee table, that wouldn't happen. But the administrator in the group responded by organizing a cleanup committee. Hey, Bill, go find a mop. Sally, help him. Bill, who's got the gift of helps, I mean, of service, rather, takes off for the mop. Sally, with the gift of help, says, hey, I'm right behind you. I'll help out. The guy with the gift of exhortation says, uh, hey, we all make mistakes. Don't let it get to you. Some woman right behind with the gift of mercy puts her arm around her and says, you know, I just did that myself a couple weeks ago. I feel bad for you. I'm sorry. This is so embarrassing. And then... There's always the person who's got the gift of giving and says, hey, I'll, 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 I'll go out and buy a new set of mugs. Now, I know that's maybe not as real. That probably actually happened sometime or another. But the point is, not that they all had gifts, but they all responded by using their gifts. That's what I love about the illustration itself. So here's how I want to conclude our time. This is how I want to conclude our time this morning. Number one, I want you to examine yourself. I want you to truly examine yourself. Do I love the whole church? Many years ago, one of my professors told the story, and I love the story, and I share it with kids as they go off to week-long camps oftentimes. And he told the story of Dr. Ship, former president of Faith Baptist Bible College, 
he was teaching all the staff and all the administrators uh, in a devotional time. And he said, I was sitting in there and I just kind of this sort of, sort of halfway listening in. But the year was beginning and the president, Dr. Ship, could tell there was, some, there was some distance between these guys. And he wanted to close the gap. So he said, uh, I, want you to, I want you to be praying for somebody who's dear to you. And, you know, instantly my prof looked across the way and he saw his friend. These guys have been hanging out for years. Not a problem. Thought of him. Started thinking about how he could pray and things he could pray for in his life because he knew him so well. Dr. Ship went on and said, now I want you to be praying for somebody who's distant from you in this room. And he thought for a little while and he saw a guy off in the corner who he'd known for years, but more of as an acquaintance, but really kind of wanted to get to know him, but really never took the time to do so. He began to pray, and God helped me to, to truly get to know this guy over here who I've sort of stiff-armed, but for no real reason. And he was beginning to enjoy this little devotion until Dr. Ship said, now I want you to pray for somebody who's difficult toward you. And immediately thought of somebody in the room. They had had some theological row. They didn't see eye to eye with each other anymore. They weren't kind to one another anymore. And he knew that he needed to deal with that situation. And he began to pray for that. So you ask yourself those questions. Who are the people in the church? Do you love the whole church? Dear, distant, difficult. Examine yourself. Here's a second thing. Measure yourself. Am I really growing in Christ? I mean, are you? Can you identify just one area in the last year that you have actually changed in? You've actually made a genuine spiritual change. If the answer is yes, praise the Lord. There's a, there, that's a sign of growth. But if the answer is no, then there's something wrong. There's, some kind of, there's some, something happening that shouldn't be happening in your life. So measure yourself. Am I growing in Christ? And then lastly, lastly, ask yourself, am I using my gifts for God to bless his church? Are you putting them into practice? Or are you just one of those people who just constantly contemplate what you might do? My advice, do something. God will reveal to you that niche that you belong in. One more thing. Just one more thing. If you're here this morning and you're not a part of the church, I mean, I know you're here. That doesn't make you part of the church. Okay? Uh, You're physically here, but you're not here in spirit because you're still trapped in your sins. You're separated from God. And you've never truly humbled your heart and placed your faith in Jesus. And that's what I'm asking you to do. Humble yourself. Humble yourself. Place your faith in Jesus and become part of the family of God. If God has spoken to your heart in some particular way today, and I trust before him that he has, then why don't you indicate that to us? That's something we can pray for you on. You can send us a text. Say, hey, pray for me. 
you're, the sermon today revealed somebody difficult in my life. I'm not loving the whole body the way I need to. You know, pray for me. I'm not exercising the gifts that God has given to me. I'm not doing as, as I ought to. Pray for me. I can't even identify one area of growth in my life, whatever it may be. And if you need to know Jesus, please tell us about that. You can indicate that as well on the paper we hand in the middle of your bulletin when we take up an offering here in a little bit. Will you pray with me?